Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Human Rights Campaign, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 19,576 people from 138 countries, and is supported by 371 organisations. As well as signatories, we have activists, we have country contacts in 50 countries globally engaged in women defending women's rights. If you'd like to get involved, there's a button on the website and we would very much welcome um, your help and involvement. This week um, on Feminist Question Time, we have Anna Kerr from Australia. Uh, we have Sheila Jeffries from the UK. We have Shelley Christina from Canada and Laura Lecona from Mexico. And we're going to start, we're going to hear from Anna Kerr from Australia. She's the Women's Human Rights Campaign Country Contact from Australia. She's from the Feminist Legal Clinic and she um, is going to talk to us uh, about what's happening in Australia um, and any other news she has. Over to you, Anna. Well, hello everyone from Feminist Legal Clinic here in Australia, where we've recently been exiled by the City of Sydney Council. Um, I'm going to be talking today about my experiences as the Principal Solicitor of Feminist Legal Clinic. Uh, we're a community legal service which provides domestic violence advocacy services and also runs human rights cases on behalf of women and girls. Uh, we assist and support women who could really benefit uh, from the protections set out in the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. Uh, I can't always talk in much detail um, about individual cases due to client confidentiality, in some cases court orders, but I think you'll see when I go through what we've been doing that the need for each article um, of the Declaration is very obvious um, in the work that we do. Okay, so Article 1, obviously this article is really the crux to all of the articles. Women's rights must be based on sex because there is no rational alternative. And this is demonstrated by this really, some of these really bizarre new laws, such as this one I've got here, section from the Tasmanian Births, Deaths and Marriages Act, uh, which has placed replaced sex with gender, which is now defined to include male or female or uh, indeterminate gender or non-binary, or a word or phrase that is used to indicate a person's perception of the person's self as, as being neither entirely male nor entirely female. And then they repeat that again, um, you know, so it's either prescribed or not prescribed. So this is the kind of um, brilliant legislation they're coming up with. Um, I don't know if you're confused yet, I certainly am. This kind of legislation creates, however, wonderful opportunities for satire and we already have many individuals claiming to identify as attack helicopters, and indeed, why not? Um, moving on to Article 2, motherhood, um, a female status. As a mother of uh, four children, I've spent a large part of my life gestating and lactating, and I am aware that there are some things men just can't do. And so while I'm happy to agree that a man can and should be put to equal use with a brush and pan um, and many other menial domestic chores, I'm not so comfortable with extending this argument to its full extent with babies. 
um, as perhaps suggested by this image taken from an article uh, by a liberal feminist. For example, the next image on this slide is of a publication recently released by the Australian Breastfeeding Association, and it talks in terms of pregnant people, lactating parents, and chest feeding, and generally does its best to convey the impression that men can do it too. Um, I think we all know that's not true. Feminists, and otherwise some of the so-called men, of course, are indeed women. Uh, Feminist Legal Clinic has been involved in supporting several breastfeeding counsellors who have been bullied and disciplined for resisting this new language and all it implies. However, it does seem that the $20,000 paid to the Australian breastfeeding by Rainbow by Family resulted in them losing all grasp of reality. So Article 2 is also close to my heart because of the work that we do coordinating a domestic violence support service in the Sydney Family Court. Recently released research has revealed that only 14% of child sexual abuse allegations are believed by family court judges. And unfortunately for many women, um, they are instead accused of engaging in parental alienation and, uh, and coaching their children to make false claims. And they then risk having their children removed from them altogether in some cases and placed with the alleged perpetrator more of the time. Uh, this is all facilitated by a narrative that women are malicious liars or delusional and this is kind of summed up in the last witty image designed by a men's rights activist. Uh, all of this completely ignores the reality that we are experiencing an epidemic of child sexual abuse and that males are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of this. And this um, also disregards the very essential safeguarding role played by mothers. And I think unless we get some change in laws, this is gonna to continue to happen. Now, Article 3, this focuses on physical and reproductive integrity. Uh, again, there's a narrative that men can mother as well, if not better than women, and this has enabled the gay male adoption and surrogacy industries to flourish in recent years. Uh, the callous commodification of women and children is enabled by rampant capitalism, which determines that the best interests of the child can be decided on economic criteria effectively equating the capacity to parent with the capacity to pay. Surrogacy arrangements prioritise contractual obligations over human rights and ignore the trauma and risk to a child inherent in removal from its mother. Members of our management committee, one in particular is a um, convener of the uh, adoption rights activists in, in Australia. So this is another area where we are active. Um, Despite the notorious Australian cases, uh, several of them that have been in the news of babies being purchased specifically for use by pedophiles, there continues to be extensive favourable coverage of surrogacy in the media. And Australian couples are some of the major customers of surrogacy services internationally. Few Australians are aware of the fact that Peter Truong and Mark Newton, pictured here, are now serving 30 and 40 year um, prison terms in United States jails as a result of what they did to this child purchased from a Russian mother. The fact that commercial surrogacy continues to be illegal within Australia does not prevent these atrocities from being committed. In 2017, when I raised concerns with surrogacy while the chair of a women's subcommittee in an association of Australian uh, human rights lawyers, I was told that these concerns were incompatible with the rights of gay men. 
shortly afterwards, I was anyhow ejected from the group for questioning trans ideology. So safeguarding women and children doesn't seem to be ever prioritised over the feelings of men, even in human rights groups. The other thing that's happened is we, we put a lot of effort in 2017 to pass a bill to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales. Uh, we weren't successful that year. It was the same year, of course, that same-sex marriage received a lot of attention and it certainly did pass. But two years later in 2019, the women's sector finally did throw its support behind a similar bill, but it was this time being spearheaded by a gay male um, politician, that's Alex Greenwich, who's uh, pictured here. But this time the legislation omitted the words mother or woman. Uh, that same campaign alliance also uh, forcibly ejected Feminist Legal Clinic uh, again because they regarded us as transphobic due to content in our, on our website, which really is just news reports. Um, now, Alex Greenwich has gone on now to introduce a motion to the New South Wales Parliament calling for further reforms to strengthen trans rights. And this was passed by consensus by the New South Wales Parliament with vocal support from all major parties. So I think we all know what's gonna come next. Uh, Article four. So in terms of our casework, uh, one of our longest running matters has been the transgender vilification case uh, brought by Bridget Clinch against one of our clients, Beth Rep. This case relates to gender critical social media posts by Beth. And um, this is a photo of Bridget Clinch, who was actually the first uh, member of the military to transition while serving. And he was instrumental in getting the Australian Defence Force to change their policy in this area. Aside from trans activism, Clinch has also been active seeking apologies for the hurt feelings of commandos charged over the killing of children in Afghanistan. He's also run as a political candidate for both the Veterans Party and the Queensland Greens. Unfortunately, due to non-publication orders made by the tribunal, there's been limited coverage of the case. The tribunal ultimately held our client liable, not only for their own social media posts, but all, for all the comments posted by third parties in response. And Beth was ordered to pay Clinch $10,000 in compensation. Such a decision has far-reaching consequences for all Australian gender-critical feminists um, who use social media to express themselves. We have, of course, appealed this decision, but we've been waiting now for the uh, outcome of that appeal since the 2nd of March this year. Um, so watch this space. Some of the other women who have contacted us for support, um, just to give you examples of, of the kind of women who are being silenced, uh, there was a social worker whose employment was threatened because she expressed agreement with JK Rowling in a staff meeting. Uh, we had an Indigenous woman working in child protection who was sacked for questioning implications for child safety during a training session. Uh, we've had a number of academics and students who've been subject to complaints and disciplinary proceedings for expressing views in this area. And we've had quite a variety of health professionals who've been required to answer complaints made against them uh, to the Healthcare Complaints Commission and other similar professional bodies. And of course, most recently, our own service has come under fire with our landlord, the City of Sydney Council, terminating our tenancy, citing material on our website that they felt might offend members of the trans community. They also cited our affiliation with this organisation, um, which they referred to as the Women's Sex-Based Rights Movement. Uh, 
Uh, despite many letters and hundreds of signatures sent to the council in support of our service, we have indeed now been evicted. Looking at Article 5, Peaceful Assembly and Association, um, one case of, is that of McIver's Ladies Pool in Sydney, which has come under extensive pressure to accept males who claim to be women as patrons. There was a lot of press coverage of this earlier on. These natural seawater pools were a sacred, were a sacred birthing place for Indigenous women prior to colonisation, and they've continued to be a sanctuary for women uncomfortable under the male gaze, including Muslim women and Orthodox Jewish women who are constrained by their religious beliefs from swimming elsewhere, as well as many lesbian women who use the pool. There've been past attempts by men to seek access to the pool, but these were successfully defended and the pool was granted an exemption from sex discrimination laws some years ago. However, that was before New South Wales introduced the laws on transgender discrimination. So we will have to wait and see how things pan out now. Regardless of the laws, in practice, many exclusively female spaces, groups and services are folding under the pressure to accept males who claim to be women. Uh, one example as a picture there is of a long-standing lesbian social group who did its best to be inclusive only to find that its numbers uh, silently plummeted from about 60 a week down to a mere dozen. But they still had no grounds to exclude males who claimed to be lesbians, despite the fact that they were clearly making many other attendees uncomfortable. Eventually there was an act of violence and a woman was seriously assaulted and the police were called. Um, and the, the act of violence was by a male who, who was claiming to be a lesbian. Um, now there were grounds to exclude, of course, the offending individual. But the, but the organisers at that stage were then too afraid to continue meeting because they were worried about reprisals of some sort. And so the group folded anyhow after 16 years of operation. Uh, most recently, we've got a case of um, a Tasmanian woman who requested an exemption from discrimination legislation so, legislation so that she could hold a lesbian drag king event and a, the Tasmanian anti-discrimination commissioner refused that exemption and so we're representing her in the tribunal in relation to that matter. Uh, Article 6, political participation. Uh, the first picture here is of a political candidate who was also elected as convener of the New South Wales Greens Women's Working Group to gushing acclaim by many women clearly keen to demonstrate their progressive credentials, while many other women silently unsubscribed from the mailing list. Uh, Michaela was embraced as a woman despite not having undergone any surgical intervention due to fragile health. Michaela also maintained a male persona for business purposes. However, any concerns expressed about her lack, um, Michaela's lack of lived experience as a woman were strongly repelled as unsafe particularly in view of Michaela's fragile medical condition. The second picture is of Divi Devondra, who was the founder and lead Senate candidate for the Women's Party in 2019, the Australian federal election. Divi had had three wives and three children and was aged over 70, but before deciding to have surgery and claimed to be a woman. I had immense difficulty getting the Australian media to publish about this as they were concerned that letting the public know that the Women's Party was in fact set up and run by a male might offend the trans community. They were far less concerned about women's feelings. 
the final picture in the corner is of me speaking at Australia's uh, Report to CEDAW in Geneva in 2018. It was not my plan at that time to raise trans issues, but I did feel compelled to speak up at a meeting um, that was held in advance of the session to oppose the inclusion of self-declaration of sex in a consensus statement being prepared by, on behalf of Australian NGO delegates. I merely made the statement that it, there was no consensus on this point. Um, this resulted in extensive repercussions for me once back in Australia, with five organisations making complaints against me. Aside from causing Feminist Legal Clinic to almost fold under the stress, there were sustained efforts for the next two years to have me removed from um, other elected positions on women's groups. So yes, political participation, definitely feeling the impact there. This one, women's sport, article seven. This is um, a picture of uh, Holly, McCon Holly Conroy, who's hailed as the driving force behind the first ever pride parade in the conservative regional town of Wagga Wagga. Conroy featured in an SBS documentary, which followed him through his surgeries in Thailand, as well as um, organizing this event. Conroy works as a truck driver and was also nominated as a finalist for regional woman of the year. The influence of such celebrity status in a country town should not be underestimated. As you can see, Conroy also likes to play soccer, but other women playing would be well advised to take care calling man on. I can't really go into more details, but just want to say that regional sporting tribunals are operated by members with very little grasp of the rules of procedural fairness and natural justice. Furthermore, ACON, which is to some extent our equivalent of Stonewall in the United Kingdom, does not appear to have qualms meddling in the functioning of sporting tribunals. Safety and fairness in women's sport is being compromised not only at the Olympic level, but also in grassroots amateur club sport. And indeed, there's even less protection for women at this level. Many women choose to stop playing rather than put their safety at risk playing against an aggressive male. I'm doing okay for time. Uh, this, in my view, feminism is about the liberation of women from male oppression and violence, and we need it as much as ever. Feminism is not about ignoring real differences that exist between men and women. Services like ours struggle to keep women and children safe, and we certainly can't do this if the word woman has lost all its meaning. Aside from, so our domestic violence advocacy work is now under threat because New South Wales Legal Aid is using our eviction by the council as a basis for threatening to remove us from all legal aid panels, court rosters, and re reassigning all my existing cases. So I'm in the process of obtaining legal advice on this. So I won't go into any further detail other than to say, again, men's feelings take priority over women's safety. Uh, this other, that, that's a photo. One of the photos is of us um, packing up the office, but the other photo is of the protesters at the event at the University of Sydney, uh, which we helped organise uh, where we were going to have a, we did have a detransitioner talk about the harms caused by extreme trans ideology. And it was complaints following this event that put in train the termination of our ten tenancy by the City of Sydney Council. Article nine about children. Look, before the COVID lockdown, our service was hosting meetings of a support group for parents where they shared distressing stories of how their children had manifested rapid onset gender dysphoria and were being fast tracked onto hormones and surgeries 
to their parents' horror. Aside from support for parents, we also assist detransitioners and help put them in touch with suitable and willing medical negligence lawyers with access to much needed litigation funding. For example, one of our clients who's been placed on hormones, which were quickly followed by a complete mastectomy and hysterectomy following just a single session with a psychiatrist, um, is hopefully we should see some litigation commence shortly. Uh, there are other efforts in Australia to organise a class action. In the recent case of re-imaging in the Australian Family Court, um, the court did clarify that it is now that it is necessary if either parent does not consent to the medical treatment of their child um, to seek court approval. Although treatment was ultimately approved for the child in this case, the decision at least resulted in a significant improvement in that. Uh, the ACON, um, who runs tran the Trans Hub, had to remove from their website advice to children over 16 that they could proceed on to hormones without their parents' consent. And I think um, part of the reason for that decision was no doubt because the judge received submissions from an intervening party referring to Article 9 of this declaration on women's sex-based rights and other evidence of mounting international concern about the harm to children by unfettered gender ideology. I like to think that this decision may have saved at least some children from embarking on harmful treatment. So um, just like to con conclude that uh, Feminist Legal Clinic is a not-for-profit charity operated by volunteers and funded entirely by the generosity of our members and supporters. Um, until recently, we did have a free office, but that is no more. So please um, continue to support us and um, consider joining as a member of our service. Thank you. So now we're going to hear from Sheila Jeffries. She's from the UK and Australia. She's a radical lesbian feminist, author and activist. And Sheila's going to talk to us about what is the logic behind the declaration? Why use the language of women's rights? So um, welcome, Sheila, and over to you. Hello, sisters. What I'm going to talk about is a bit of the history of how there came to be such a thing as women's human rights. Um, and I'm going to talk about major human rights conventions and what they do or don't mean for women. I'll see how far I get today, because I know there's quite a bit of history that we might need to consider. If I don't get too far, I shall come back another day. So I shall go through and explain what these are about and how women are excluded from them. The notion of human rights was not really used and the language of human rights wasn't used at the time of the League of Nations uh, before the or between the First World War and the Second World War. And indeed, America was not in the League of Nations, it was being isolationist. So that may be one of the reasons why that particular language uh, was not in the League of Nations. It, the United Nations, which uses the language of human rights and sets up the idea of women, uh, men's human rights, women's human rights, supposedly universal human rights, came out of the Second World War. The Second World War was so horrendous, particularly in terms of the Holocaust and the extraordinary uh, violations of human rights that took place, that uh, it was felt that there needed to be a Charter of Human Rights coming out of the League of Nations. Now, the, so you see the first um, the document here is the 1945 United Nations Charter, which set out what the United Nations was going to do. 
The woman who was sent to the, uh, the meeting that developed the charter was Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt was the wife of Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was the US president and died shortly before the end of the Second World War. And she was a strong feminist. She was also a lesbian. Uh, I think that does need to be pointed out so that we don't we make sure that we do not erase lesbian history. She was involved for decades with a journalist called Lorena Hickok. Her husband, um, who before she got involved with Lorena, he became involved with his secretary and was involved for decades with her. So they lived very semi-detached lives. Now, Eleanor went with the strength of feminists and a feminist movement behind her to the meeting that set up the United Nations Charter, and it was her intention to make sure that the word sex, which we can see here, was in that charter. Uh, if there had not been a strong feminist movement determined to achieve that, then it is likely that the word sex would not have been there. So you, in the United Nations Charter, you see that it actually says, without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. Now, the, the idea of human rights was then put into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UDHR, in 1948. And we can see how this works. It, it replicates some of the language of the Charter. It says here, everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth without any distinction of any kind such as race, color, sex, language, religion, etc. You will notice that uh, there is nothing about gender at this time, of course. And then we have Article 12 here. Um, uh, and you begin to see where there are some problems with um, rights and the way that men have conceptualized them, because we've got here, no one should be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, and you can see problems are starting to arise here. The family. So this is about men's privacy, men's homes, men's families, which should not be interfered with by the state. And as you are doubtless aware, the home is the place where most violence against women takes place. Um, not to attacks upon his honor and reputation. So what a woman's honor is, is an interesting question. Women have never really had honor or dignity. Those terms don't really apply to women. So we've got, we've got a setup here of a sort of masculine prototype of the person who has rights. Another little problem here, uh, the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society as is entitled to protection by society and the state. And that's a problem because it does suggest there should be no interference with the family, which really means a unit which is controlled by men and embodies men's power and in which women and children are controlled. So it's actually stating that the family the realm, is the realm of men and separate from state interference. Now, these rights set out in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were then incorporated into two significant what were called covenants in 1966. The first of these was the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR. Now, this is a document which incorporates the traditional notion of human rights. And where did human rights come from? The ideas that are in here, they came from a struggle by a newly developing class at the time of the industrial revolution in the 18th century. The new bourgeoisie wanted to limit the absolute power of the 
government and of the king and set out that they did have human rights, ways in which they should not be treated. For instance, it says here, every human being has the inherent right to life. So this actually meant the rights of these particular men. They never meant the rights of women at that time. And these rights are now coming into the International Covenant, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. You can immediately see the difficulty here uh, because the um, women do not have the same sort of right to life. Women are actually killed by men in their homes as well as in other places, but that was never meant. What was meant was the state imprisoning men who thought that they should have rights or um, executing men without fair trial who thought that they should have rights and so on. So it was never intended to um, apply to women. It was never intended to apply to all of the women who will die because the rights to abortion have now been removed in the state of Texas. So women's lives have now been considered important in uh, traditional human rights understandings. And then we've got Article 7 here. Uh, no one shall be subjected to torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. And women, of course, are subjected to all of these things in the home, often for many years in which they suffer very cruel kinds of torture by male partners or husbands. Now, the, the problem with the way that these rights are expressed, which are, of course did not apply to women, has been explained by feminist theorists in terms of the public-private split. Many of you here will be familiar with everything I'm saying and also the public-private split. So just in case that is not the case, I'll explain what that means. These traditional rights were about the public sphere what the state does to men and that men don't like them doing in the public sphere. They never applied to the private sphere because the private sphere was the private sphere of men's power over women and children. And these rights absolutely did not apply to that. And then we have here Article 8. No one shall be held in slavery. Slavery and the slave trade in all their forms shall be prohibited and no one shall be required to perform forced or compulsory labor. Well, of course, none of this makes any sense uh, in terms of what happens to women. Uh, there are millions and millions of women who are held in slave marriages that they have been sold or exchanged into as children or forced into as uh, young adults. They have no right to leave those marriages. Um, in Islamic customary law and many other religious laws, women are denied the right to leave the home. You'll be familiar with what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment, which is women are being told they may not go out without a man who is their owner or responsible for them. And this means that women whose husbands, for instance, have been killed in war, uh, cannot support their children, they cannot go out to it, they cannot go out of the house, uh, and so on. And at the moment, many of them are in a very, very perilous situation. But this is true in many other case uh, situations as well. For instance, in, in the Lebanon, there are three kinds of customary religious law, all of which say that women must have permission to be able to leave their homes from the man who owns them. Um, so slavery obviously takes place in the home. I don't think there's any 
a question about that. No one should be required to perform forced or compulsory labor. Well, women do. Women are required to produce children that they do not wish to produce. They are forcibly impregnated. They have no choice over that. They are obviously expected to do housework. This is an ordinary part of the slave contract in marriage. And this uh, slave contract, if you can have a contract in slavery, and actually you can, but I won't get into that yet. Um, this takes place in some communities in Western countries, as well as in other places. There are uh, Christian religious co uh, communities, for instance, in the US and other places where, where all of these things um, take place. Now, um, Article 9. Everyone has the right to liberty and security of person. No one should be subjected to arbitrary arrest or detention. No one should be deprived of his liberty, except on such grounds. And in accordance with such procedures as are established by law, as I've explained, women absolutely don't have uh, the right to liberty and security of person. This is simply not thinkable, really, unfortunately, in relation to women and that was not considered. Uh, Article 12, everyone should be free to leave any country, including his own, absolutely not the case. Uh, women are not allowed to leave Saudi Arabia, uh, very difficult for them to do so, um, and so on. Now, the other covenant which passed in 1966 was the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Now, the, the previous uh, covenant that we've been looking at was very much approved by the United States because it was about individual rights and individualism is rampant in the US and they approve of that concept of rights. This covenant was not so much approved by the United States because it's about um, rights uh, people as a class in terms of employment or in terms of culture and so on. So this was not such a popular um, covenant. Uh, there are many uh, problems with this covenant as well uh, for women. Um, one of which is that um, it's, it says that there should be freedom of determination for peoples, free de uh, self-determination for peoples. Well, it doesn't say anything about how women may be oppressed within these groups that demand uh, self-determination and set up their own territories and so on. Um, it says the state's parties to the present covenant undertake to ensure the equal rights of men and women uh, and so on. So that's all in there still. And it recognizes the right to work, which includes the right of everyone, to the opportunity to gain his living by work, which he freely chooses or accepts, and will take appropriate steps to safeguard this right. Well, of course, women don't have that right. Women work in the home. They don't get paid. They have no trade union. And all of the work that women do, which is the very basis of the capitalist system and of men's power and control and prosperity, none of that is recognized by this covenant. Now, clearly, it was recognized that this, these um, covenants and up till this point did not necessarily cover the interests of women. It was the 1957 one as well, which was on slavery, didn't cover women and so on. So the fact that there had to be, in 1979, a convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, CEDAW, the fact that a women's convention had to exist shows clearly that all of these other conventions did not include women, were not intended to include women, and so on. And though we in this, in the WHRC, consider CEDAW to be very important and promoted, there are problems with this convention as well. 
For instance, um, if we look at Article 1, it says, um, for the purposes of the present convention, the, dis, uh, dis, uh, the term discrimination against women shall mean any distinction, exclusion, or restriction made on the basis of sex. Good. But it talks about a basis of equality of women and men. And the concept of equality is unfortunately one which is um, really not in the interests of women, cannot represent the interests of women. As we, uh, as many feminist scholars have pointed out, the idea of equality is extremely problematic uh, because as Catherine McKinnon explains, the whole way that the world of male domination is organized, whether we're talking about work or sport or whatever we're talking about, was constructed by men in their interests and in their image. So there's no level playing field that women can possibly achieve because of the way that everything is set out. Catherine McKinnon talks about there having been an affirmative action program for men, which has constructed the world in a way which gives them huge advantages and makes it and makes it because it's created around men's bodies, around their interests, and so on, impossible for women to have any equality in. If we just think about, for instance, parliaments to begin with, um, they regularly operate outside ordinary working hours, so women with children can't easily take part. They do have toilets now. When the House of Commons first admitted women MPs, they didn't have toilets for women. Um, debates in the parliaments are based upon the debating societies in elite boys' schools. The men insult each other. They use aggressive tactics. None of these things suit the way that women are trained throughout their lives to behave. And they may, for many reasons, not be effective. So parliaments are constructed in the image of men and women are supposed to somehow fit themselves in. If women don't fit themselves in to these male constructed institutions and norms, then women are blamed and women are said to be not sufficiently wanting to be involved, not really wanting to be um, in, in Parliament. Uh, let's think about the world of work. That's organised around men who have women at home to organise their their homes, the childcare, the food, the housework. Um, uh, Carol Pateman talks about the individual, and obviously the individual means a man, worker, um, having uh, the wife at home who packs his lunch pail. That's how it was all conceptualized. And so when women work, they don't have wives. And so they have to do two jobs and work out how to organize childcare around that system. And it's simply not possible for women to slot themselves in because they have to look after children, sick family members and so on. If we think about sport, it's organized around men and masculinity. Every system and institution of men's world was constructed by them in their interests. And women can't ever be equal by struggling to enter them. I don't know whether any of you have seen on British television, we have had advertisements for the um, the uh, uh, Paralympics on television, horrendous advertisements that all show people with disabilities who are athletes with bruises and blood and bleeding. And it's all about, you can do it. You can go beyond the limits. It's about masculinity, extreme, aggressive masculinity. And I mean, it's so horrifying that we actually have have to sort of hide the television or did have to at the point at which these 
awful adverts were on. So we can see what the, the ideas are behind the Olympics. Um, so equality is a very problematic concept. Um, political scientists have created the term substantive equality to apply to this problem. And substantive equality is based on the recognition of the very different situations that groups in a population may be in. Such that formal equality, the problem of equality I've just been talking about, actually in the end discriminates against them. Um, I'm not sure that um, the idea of substantive equality is sufficient either because it doesn't really address the problem of the extraordinary transformation of societies the societies men have set up that's required in order to enable women to have any fair chance. Um, so as I just said, the, the idea of equality in the end blames women. Women are the ones who don't try. They don't try to get promotion. They don't try to be heads of Fortune 500 companies and so on. And they don't try hard enough. And that is why they have very little money when they retire, because they've had to interrupt their careers to look after everybody else and so on. Um, the, the, uh, another problem with CEDAW, and I think we will because I've been talking probably long enough today, talk about this at some other time, is that it's concerned with the public world. It doesn't relate to the private world in which most of the harms to women are effected. Uh, feminists campaigned after CEDAW to, uh, to cover this very serious gap and the uh, result was the 1993 Declaration on Violence Against Women, which though a very good document has problems of its own. But I will talk about that, I think, some other time. Now, I just want to finish off by saying that um, though there are many problems with the idea of human rights, um, uh, the idea has been very much criticized for its individualism, for instance. There are many ways in which women, uh, there are many ways in which women are still excluded, and I've only touched on the problem. And I was against the, using the idea of using human rights up until I wrote my book, The Idea of Prostitution in 97. By that time, I decided that it was necessary to use rights language and mechanisms to argue for women internationally. It was the only way in which women's concerns could get onto the international agenda. Now, all that I've been talking about today comes from feminist human rights theory, which was greatly expanded in the 1990s. But more recently, I feel there's been a general failure of confidence and hope in using women's rights because there's been a move to the right politically. And of course, as a result of the assault on, of, of transvestites on the notion that women exist. But I feel encouraged by the fact that through this network of ours, a new generation of women's rights activists is being created with new enthusiasm for the task. And this gives me hope. Thank you very much. Now, we are really uh, lucky to have Shelley Christina from Canada, and she's going to talk next. She's from Concerned Women, Canada, Canadian Women, advocating for women and girls. She works with two outstanding groups, WMC and uh, Casbar. This is the greatest threat to women's rights she's seen, and she doesn't want to stand passively by while her granddaughters are deprived of these rights. So she's happy going to talk to us, which is great. So um, Shirley Christine is going to talk to us about policies affecting women and girls and what we've got brewing for the election campaign. So welcome, Shelley, and over to you. We are in the middle of an election. It's a challenging one. This is our one opportunity to really hold politicians to account. Uh, 
pretty much all of our institutions in Canada are thoroughly captured by gender ideology uh, from the federal government to provincial governments to the educational system. Uh, it's, it's not great. So um, the media also, uh, because our sitting government has heavily subsidized the media. So the legacy media will not report on the issues concerning gender ideology. They just will not do it. Um, so Women Matter Canada grew out of a desire to specifically do something about the election. Uh, pretty much everyone in Women Matter Canada are also a member of COSBAR. And I think it's important just to mention at this point before I go any further that a number of people in other countries think that Canada is USA light. We are not. Conservatives in Canada are entirely different from Republicans in the United States. They are pro-choice uh, for the most part, except for social conservatives. That's another matter, but I mention this because although the vast majority of women that are fighting against gender, gender ideology in Canada, I think it's fair to say that they are from the left of the political spectrum. They are not by any means the only ones, not at all. Uh, there are plenty of women who are politically homeless, there is much opportunity here. We just have to get the message out. And it's really very difficult because we cannot get any sort of media coverage to speak of in terms of at least the legacy media. So big issues are that Hmm. The language of in, uh, women have effectively been erased in law and language in Canada. Um, much policy has been changed by stealth. Um, for instance, in respect to prisons, which is a huge problem here. I, I mention this because 5% um, of uh, the female population in federal prisons, yes, 40% of those are extremely vulnerable Indigenous women. In 2017, about a year and a half after our current government came in, uh, the law was, the Bulletin 584 was very quietly changed. Prior to this, in order to, for a male convict to be allowed to be in a women's facility, there had to be SRS, uh, sexual reassignment surgery, no more, not even hormones, just self-identification. The government is desperate to keep this quiet. We have many dedicated women in COSBAR who have organized protest after protest at prisons across Canada to cannot get any coverage whatsoever from the media. Uh, I remember one time they did it. It was immediately taken down uh, because transgender activists objected to the transphobia of it all. So 
There are several bills that haven't been introduced by the government. The first one that was extremely problematic for us, for women, was um, Bill C-16. And that added gender identity and gender diversity to the protected uh, grounds act. So anti-discriminatory. Um, this has wildly expanded. So, you know, um, uh, you know, anytime there's federal services, any figure, federal regulated employer, any, you know, any federal employee, um, all must bow before, you know, the concept of gender identity or gender diversity is really disadvantaged women. Second, Bill C-6, which went before our House, went before the Senate, it, it, it has died because of the fact that the um, uh, writ was dropped for our election. If this government gets reelected, it will be back. Bill C-6 purports to ban forced conversion therapy, which sounds very nice. Except the vast majority of people in Parliament do not understand the difference between gender and sex. So, purportedly, it is about gay adults. We must not force people who are gay to have conversion therapy. Of course not. But what it really does is criminalize, it will potentially criminalize parents. Uh, therapists, anyone who attempts to discuss with children, you know, any possibility other than so-called affirmative care. You will see the sneer quotes in the air because um, I don't personally see anything affirmative about any of it. There is always meant to completely annihilate gender non-conforming children in favor of transing them. That's basically what Bill C-6 is. At the moment, it is not going to happen. But if this government gets in, they swear it's the first thing they're going to do. We also have Bill C-10, and that is really important because that is a, that is a supposed hate speech bill. That will allow the government to monitor and censor groups on the internet. So all the women's groups that are currently attempting to do something about gender ideology, I suspect will be effectively barred and banned from all manner of groups, Facebook, all manner of social media, Twitter, all kinds of things. You know, it's, it's one of these things that uh, is just, just the precursor to all kinds of other attempts to suppress uh, women's rights groups, which are already pretty beleaguered. Sometimes I feel as though, you know, Scotland and Australia and uh, Canada are all very, very much the same. You know, we have problems with um, uh, sport, you know, we have problems with prisons, we have problems with, 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 with health issues. I, you know, like other places, the word woman 
and female has been removed, say, from all medical advice campaigns. So there are a lot. Canada is a very diverse country. There are a great many people who have English as a second language. When you uh, remove the word woman from a medical advice campaign and replace it with cervix hever, there are a great many women who do not know what a cervix is. They know what a woman is, it's them, but they don't know what a cervix is. Naturally, none of this applies to men. There are no prostate havers or ejaculators mentioned in any medical advice campaigns in Canada. But for women, it is the same thing. Chest feeding, vulva owners, all, all of this sort of thing. It is, it is dehumanizing. It is revolting. And the government has done this through stealth, largely. It is infuriating. They do not have any interest in women's rights, children's safety, none of them. So um, there you have it. It's, it is difficult. So what we're, what we're doing at Women Matter Canada is very, very grassroots. You know, it's, it's not surprising since the media is so thoroughly captured that uh, many people just don't know <laughs> what's going on. We go out on the streets, uh, we watch out for each other, we hand out uh, leaflets, we talk to people. Uh, every single conversation makes a difference. It really does. And, and this, this is very much true, I have noticed, for younger women. Um, you know, I remember being at a, we were at a pop-up, a uh, little pop-up event where we'll be handing out leaflets and she took one and she uh, read the QR code with her phone. She was reading, she walked away and she came back and she wanted to know a lot of things. Nobody knows what's going on. It's, it's never did I imagine, never did I imagine that my country would become like this. But I still have plenty of energy um, and we just absolutely must, must go on. I, I just, single sex spaces, of course, are all being eliminated. There is a very prominent trans activist in Vancouver who has been stalking Vancouver rape relief for years and years and years. Um, there is a level of spite and malice in all of this, which is amazing. And I, for one, will not listen to the mantra, be kind anymore. Not at all. I have seen personally, not anecdotally, personally, I have encountered a trans-identifying man in a bathroom who asked me for a tampon, if I had a spare tampon. I mean, look at me, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in my 60s, right? <laughs> anyway, I told him not to be ridiculous. I have seen a little boy that has been trans by his mother. 
in a rural area, not in an urban area, not in a city. We simply have to stand up for this. We will do it. Women Matter Canada will, and Cosbar will too. You know, it's. I I'm hoping very much that um, this government is voted out. We will do everything we can to make that happen. Everything we can. We will not. I'm, we will not rest until the very eve of the election, and then we'll still be out there because we just can't give up. You know, I, it, it. We cannot. I do hope. I do hope whether people feel comfortable with this or not, as I, I remind people, Canada is not the USA light. Our conservative party is not at all the same as Republicans in the United States. Um, whatever people might think, the liberal party who is the sitting, who is the sitting party, it has to go because they have enabled all of this, all of it every last bit of it, they're going to go. We're going to see that they're going to go. I just really want to thank every single woman I know in Cosbar and every single woman I know in Women Matter Canada who stand up for us and for children. We're now going to hear from Laura uh, Laura Lacona, who is from Mexico. She's the Women's Human Rights Campaign Country Contact for Mexico, and um, she's going to talk about why feminists need to drop the word gender. So uh, thank you so much for coming, Lara, and I've been looking forward to hearing from you. So over to you. I will talk today about why I think feminists need to drop the word gender. If you are active on social media or don't shy away from uncomfortable conversations at dinner parties, you probably have more than once engaged in an attempt to explain the differences between sex and gender. I can bet that after listening to your patient explanation, almost everybody has claimed to understand the difference. But do they really? It's not rocket science, of course. We have immutable biology on the one hand and social constructions on the other. How could one mix them up? our reproductive organs versus the roles imposed on us in virtue of them. It's not difficult to grasp, right? But if it is so straightforward, how is it possible that the UN Women Gender Equality Glossary, no less, includes definitions as contradictory as gender is socially constructed and learned through socialization processes and Gender identity refers to a person's innate, deeply felt internal individual experience of gender. Never mind the circular definition. What can be simultaneously innate and learned through socialization? Someone might say language, for example. We are born with the ability to learn a language, but the learning itself is done through socialization. But if you and women were likening gender to a language, they should explain it, which they don't. I am talking here about the official online tool of the UN Women Training Center, a glossary of what people regard as the international ultimate authority in all things gender. And even they don't seem to get the difference. It's not surprising then that young aspiring feminists who learn about feminism and gender in social media 
are terribly confused. When I first bumped into the world working with newsletters about the 1995 Beijing World Conference on Women, I didn't quite understand the new hype over it. What did this, did this term possess, which the good old sex roles lacked? Why did we need a new concept? Also, without, without access to a formal definition, I tried to deduce the meaning from the usage and noticed some inconsistencies, as well as some tendency to use it as if to pepper a text with it willy-nilly. Anyway, I didn't give it much thought until almost 25 years later. I got accustomed to the gradual substitution of gender something for feminism and everything for pertaining to women's human rights. Typically, trans activists claiming they master the sex gender distinction talk about gender as something innate and about sex as something socially constructed and not the other way around as feminists do. Hence, many, many women in the so-called gender critical circles and even some radical feminists and abolitionists think we must reappropriate the term for ourselves and keep giving lessons on its correct usage. I don't agree. I am with Sheila Jeffries when in Unpacking Queer Politics, published in 2003, said, radical lesbian feminists seek to abolish what has been called gender altogether. I am no fan of the word gender and would prefer to abolish it in favor of exp expressions which refer directly to the political foundation of male domination. Thus, I prefer to describe masculinity as male dominant behavior and femininity as female subordinate behavior. No multiplicity of genders, of genders can emerge from this perspective. If only we had listened to her back then. The situation right now in 2021 is, the word is used in a variety of senses by the very same people, depending on the context or on the occasion. It may be used as synonym for things so different as personality, patriarchy, sex roles and sex stereotypes, a feminist point of view, a recognition of LGBT people, the relations between the sexes, clothing preferences, the very biological sex we insist on contrasting it with. That is why, for example, two days ago, when I said to a journalist, we don't have a gender identity, she translated in it in print to we can't identify as male or female, that is, as masculine or feminine. And that is why when we say we want to abolish gender, some understand we are planning to exterminate people who are trans-identified. Words have a life of their own. Gender is an overloaded polysemic word. If we want clarity, and more than ever we desperately need clarity, this is not the way. And if we really want the word for ourselves and for our theorizing, maybe it would be a better idea to recognize it as a lost battle, not only with trans activists, but with speakers in general. Also, we must acknowledge the fact that the situation we are in regarding the clash between the rights of women and the rights of men who claim a female gender identity owes an awful lot to this conceptual mess. A key move of the transsexual empire was the invention of the transgender person who replaced the old fashioned transsexual. And the appeal of transgenderism to some people very much depends on this kind of terminological confusions. If instead of gender identity, we talked about 
sex role identity, as Sheila Jeffries has suggested, the concept would be easier to grasp and much more difficult to accept. Feminists who want gender back surely must think it is a term, a term coined by feminists. Clearly, they haven't read Gender Hurts by Jeffries, who remembers in the introduction. The term gender itself is problematic. It was first used in the sense that it was not simply about grammar by sexologists who were involved in normalizing intersex infants. They used the term to mean the behavioral characteristics they considered most appropriate for persons of one or other biological sex. Their purpose was not progressive. Those, these were conservative men who believed that there should be clear differences between the sexes and sought to create distinct sex categories through their projects of social engineering. Unfortunately, the term was adopted by some feminist theorists in the 1970s. Before the term gender was adopted, the term more usually used to describe the socially constructed characteristics was, was sex roles. The word role connotes a social construction and was not susceptible to the degeneration that has afflicted the term gender and enabled it to be wielded so effectively by transgender activists." End of quote. If Simone de Beauvoir could write the second sex without using the word gender and Kate Millett didn't need it neither to, to write sexual politics, why can't we live without it? Millet uses instead as a leitmotif throughout her book, the trio of concepts, role, status, and temperament, which make explicit the main components of sex roles and the power relations they enforce. Even the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW from 1981, doesn't include the word gender at all. In the creation of patriarchy published in 1986, Gerda Lerner says, Gender is a cultural definition of behavior defined as appropriate to the sexes in a given society at a given time. Gender is a set of cultural roles. It is a costume, a mask, a straight jacket in which men and women dance their unequal dance. Unfortunately, the term is used both in academic discourse and in the media as interchangeable with sex. In fact, it's widespread public use probably is due to its sounding a bit more refined than the plain words than the plain word sex with its nasty connotations. Such usage is unfortunate because it hides and mystifies the difference between the biological given sex and the culturally created gender. Feminists above all others should want to point out that difference and should therefore be careful to use the appropriate words. Gerda Lerner herself uses the term only in 10, page, in 10 pages throughout the book, uh, The Creation of Patriarchy, so it's not fundamental to her theory. And apparently, not all feminists took notice of her sensible warnings back in 1986. That same year, in her influential article, Gender, a useful category of, of historical analysis, John Wallach Scott states, in its most recent usage, gender seems to have first appeared among American feminists who wanted to insist on the fundamentally social quality of distinctions based on sex. The word denoted a rejection of the biological determinism implicit in the use of such terms as sex or sexual difference. 
Those who worried that women's studies scholarship focused too narrowly and separately on women used the term gender to introduce, to introduce a relational notion into our analytic vocabulary. According to this view, women and men were defined in terms of one another and no understanding of either could be achieved by entirely separate study. In its simplest recent usage, gender is a synonym for women and a number of books and articles whose subject is women's history have in the past few years substituted gender for women in their titles. In some cases, this usage is actually about the political acceptability of the field. In these instances, the use of gender is meant to denote the scholarly seriousness of a work, for gender has a more neutral and objective sound than does women. Gender seems to fit within the scientific terminology of social science and thus dissociates itself from, from the supposedly strident politics of feminism. In this usage, gender does not carry with it a necessary statement about inequality of, or power, nor does it name the aggrieved and either to invisible party. Whereas the term women's history proclaims its politics by asserting, contrary to customary practice, that women are valid historical subjects, Gender includes, but does not name, women, and so seems to pose no critical threat. This use of gender is one facet of what might be called the quest of feminist scholarship for academic legitimacy in the 1980s. Gender seems to have become a particularly useful word as studies of sex and sexuality have pro proliferated, for it offers a way of differentiating sexual practice from the social roles assigned to women and men." End of quote. As we know, abundantly know, none of these discouraged the use of gender by feminists. On the contrary, it explains why gender studies took the place of women's studies in universities throughout the West with the active collaboration of feminists themselves and why feminism in general has depoliticized and watered down in the last decades. As for the nasty connotations of sex to which Gerda Lerner alludes, here's a revealing anecdote. In, number, in November 1993, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had just been appointed to the US Supreme Court, quote, brought gales of laughter at her old law school when she explained when she explained why she started using the term gender discrimination instead of sex discrimination. I owe it all to my secretary at Columbia Law School who said, I'm typing all these briefs and articles for you and the words sex, sex, sex is on every page, Ginsburg said. Don't you know that those nine men on the Supreme Court, they hear that word and their first association is not the way you want them to be thinking? Why don't you use the word gender? It's a grammatical term and it will ward off distracting associations." End of quote. I don't have an exact date, but I gather this was in the early 1980s. You see, even women who fought for the rights of women use the word as an euphemism. In conclusion, the word gender within feminism has been equivocal from the start and not always inadvertently. We don't have to cling on to a term that has perhaps done more harm than good. We can perfectly do without it. And 
here are some ideas to abolish the word gender from our own analysis. Instead of gender as a system, we can use patriarchy or this term Sheila Jeffries just used, male supremacist, male supremacist society. Instead of gender perspective, feminist perspective. Instead of gender roles, sex roles. Gender stereotypes, sex stereotypes. Gender as behavior, masculinity and femininity, or as Jeffries prefers, male dominant behavior and female subordinate behavior. Gender violence, male violence, or violence against women, or sex-based violence. Gender discrimination, sex-based discrimination. Gender diversity, the fact that not everybody is heterosexual. Gender equality, equality between men and women, or between the sexes. Gender non-conforming person, someone who doesn't fit in sex stereotypes or doesn't perform sex roles. Gender identity, depending on, on what we want to, to, to underline, it may be soul, personality, or sexual stereotype identity. So if we want clarity and dis dissociating with liberal feminism and transgenderism in the bargain, I invite you to consider stop using the word gender. Thank you very much.